Welcome to Pitchside Perspective Podcast with your hosts Stuart Sharples and Jack Colazar. Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of Pitchside Perspective Podcast. In today's episode, we are joined by another special guest as we look to discuss the highs and lows of confidence within the Premier League and how it could shape your team's season. Jack, how are you, mate? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I, uh, I'm glad the Premier League's back after that international break. There were some good games at the weekend. Yeah, some entertaining stuff. Uh, League Cup games as well, so some midweek action. So lots of games to watch and uh, talk about. Yeah, it's always good when there's some games during the week as well. It definitely makes the working week go quicker. Um, I was happy last night, obviously, Man United getting a win, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later on in this pod um, with our guest. Um, what beer is your choice this week, Jack? I've got a new trail brewing company. It's the Lazy River Pilsner, uh, brewed in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Lazy River sounds like your type of beer. That's Yeah, well, one of those words for sure. Uh, yeah, right. So I've kind of gone with uh, a very local beer to me, obviously living in Hoboken. This is brewed by Hoboken Brewery. Um, it's the Bodie Blonde. Um, it's a very popular beer in the bars around here. Um, a fresh ale with coconut. I know obviously we're getting into the full season, but there's still a few of these. There's only a limited amount at the moment, so I'm glad I got my hand on a four-pack um, and look forward to drinking it. Yeah, and if anyone knows Hoboken, they, they'll know that coconut really is the flavour that reminds you of Hoboken, right? Yeah, all those coconut trees uh, on the front of the, the Hudson River, definitely. Um, so yeah, now is the time to introduce our special guest. I'm really uh, excited to have this guest on. Um, this guest is coming from overseas, our first overseas guest, and that is Phil. Phil, how are you, mate? Yeah, very good, thanks. Thanks for having me on, and yeah, I'm, I'm excited. So, yeah, so we, we've we known each other probably for best part of 10, 11 years now, uh, obviously working together uh, back in the UK elite days. Um, what are you up to these days? Uh, you're in Spain, right? Yeah, so I'm in Alicante. Um, I've been working with Alicante CTFC for the last few years. And uh, this year I'm going in as a as a mindset coach for, for footballers uh, with, with my own business, with, with uh, individual clients, and then also with Alicante City as well. Nice. Uh, that business, Mindsight Sport, right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. So uh, what what type of things do you do with uh, your business, Mindsight Sport? What uh, What's it it's all about? Uh, so, yeah, so as we know, again, I'm sure we'll touch on this kind of stuff today, but a lot of players who it's, it's, sometimes it's hard for them to speak to their coach, you know, it's, do they want to go to the coach and say, I'm not feeling confident at the moment? Some coach would be great with that. Some, but usually, usually it's a worry of, you know, if I tell my coach I'm low in confidence, I'm not going to play. So I'm kind of that person away from the club, away and have that distance where I can kind of give them advice on confidence or on the other side as well, like goal setting, um, dealing with injuries and so forth. No, it sounds uh, sounds very promising. It seems like the the mind sight and the mental part of the game is definitely coming more and more in at the moment. Um, so no, I'm looking forward to, to discussing the whole issue of confidence at the moment with some players and teams in the Premier League. Uh, but before we do go ahead, every guest that comes on um, gets some questions from Jack. So I'm going to hand it over to Jack. Yeah, time for the uh, five quick or not so quick questions. Uh, first of all, name. Phil Philippou. Favourite team? 
Crystal Palace. Okay. You and Steve have a little uh, rivalry this week. Two games, one cup, one league. Yeah. Two easy wins. End up happier. Yeah. Uh, favorite favorite ever sporting memory. Um, Palace winning the playoff final in '97. First time I, I went to Wembley. David Hopkins scored a winner in the 89th minute against Sheffield United. Nice, great day out at Wembley. Uh, favorite ever kit. Um, I was toying with this, and for Palace it will be '96 to '98. We had a lovely TDK Adidas. Old school red and blue stripes. Um, and then also one that always sticks in my mind, and you're, you're kind of wearing a similar one now, Brazil 98. <laughs> yeah, Brazil 98. Was that the World Cup final shirt in France? Yeah, yeah, the, the Nike. Yeah. yeah, nice. Best player seen live? And I was lucky enough uh, about four or five years ago, uh, I went to Villarreal v Barcelona. Uh, Messi didn't get out of third gear. Got a golden assist, and yeah, it was unreal. So the the 100% run continues for Lionel Messi. It does. Every guest we've had so yeah. far, Lionel Messi. <laughs> I, I don't think you can really go wrong with that. None of these people no. have been to see Huddersfield Town play. This is the problem. I was going to say, Jack, Jack, have you ever seen Messi play? No. All right, so let's go. Jack, who's the best player you've ever seen live? Uh, Jonathan Hogg, Huddersfield Town. Uh <laughs> No, it might be Wayne Rooney. I would guess it'd probably be a, a Wayne Rooney. Rooney couldn't lace Hogg's boots. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. So, yeah, obviously last week, Jack, you gave me a very tough question. Um, I'm going to give a, a special shout-out to one person I think got quite close to finishing all the answers, and that was obviously Brody. He was going back and forth us. He got quite a few right, um, so hats off to you. But I don't think you got the full amount, so there's no hoodie coming your way um, that we do not have currently. Um, but Jack, I've got a question for you this week. Um, not sure if you're going to find it easy or hard, but it's all about red cards. Yeah. Okay. So in the Premier League, there are three players who are joint top for holding the record of the most red cards. Of all time. Of all time. Premier League. So Premier League era. Okay. Three players. They all have eight red cards in Premier League career. They don't have to be current players. They could be retired. Uh, I'll give you a little clue. The three players are not current players. They're not currently playing. They're all retired. Okay. So I have a little think. So three players are joint top for the most red cards. Listeners, have a little think as well. Um, I was actually shocked. To, well, not really shocked, but I thought you had a little bit more discipline than that for the for one of them. But that is it. So, yeah, good luck, Jack. I think, I think I've... I've got an idea on this one. All right. Four three. We'll see. All right. We'll see at the end. But yeah, so today's episode's all all gonna be about the about confidence. Obviously, we've got a lot of listeners on here that are Premier League fans. Um, and for me especially, being a, a Man United fan, I think we've gone from myself watching them in the nineties, obviously two thousands, where we were all about the confidence. Like you teams would turn up at Old Trafford. And wouldn't even get a sniff because of that confidence coming off of every single player. Now you look at the last 10 years since Fergie's left and not only has there not been any confidence in the managers, you've seen players lose confidence. You've seen, I think, Man United turn good players into bad players. Like, for example, you look at Harry Maguire. Harry Maguire was looked at by Man City, wasn't a bad player, then comes to United 
and all of a sudden people are labeling him as a bad player and his confidence is shot. Um, so Phil would love to get your kind of insight into the whole confidence issue at the moment with some of the teams um, in the Premier League. Yeah, I mean, yeah. just mentioned Maguire there. I think he's a great one to, to talk about. And I, I don't think he's a bad player now. You know, if you if you watch him play for England, look at the difference. I think probably in the World Cup, he was one of England's most most consistent players. And yet when he goes to, to United, goes back to United, looks like a nervous wreck, doesn't he? And you just look at a difference in body language and demeanour. Um, yeah, something's not right there, is there? No, what... Do you think you can put it down to something? Obviously, there's there's two different managers, two different environments. Is it the culture? Is it the environment? Is it the manager? Yeah, again, you're talking about the two different Uniteds there. And I, I don't know if you've read the, the Barcelona way by, by Damien Hughes. He kind of touches on this where each team's got a different culture. So you, they're very much, Man United under Ferguson was very much a authoritarian style. Um, you know that kind of culture and that's great if that person stays there but when they go it tends to fall apart and I, I don't think I know you've won a few trophies but I mean look at the managers you've had it's, it's not really been been the same and yeah I, th- I think Maguire just, again you, you look at the two managers there Southgate uh, and Ten Hag two you know, very chalk and chalk and cheese and um, yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't seem to be working for him. Yeah, no, and I think you look at you look at England at the moment. I think the last squad that they had, you had the likes of Calvin Phillips getting minutes and hasn't really touched the ball with City. So there's obviously Southgate is somewhat confident in these players internationally, but then when it comes to Premier League, obviously Pep's not seeing Calvin Phillips as a player. So I think it's it's definitely got something to do with the culture, right, that you're in. Um, and it seems like Southgate is more of a arm-round-the-shoulder type of coach compared to a a Pep or a Ten Hag and maybe even an Arteta. Um, I mean, you look at Arteta at the moment. Ramsdale was a, by far number one choice last year. Ramsdale started the season as the number one choice. Now, all of a sudden, Raya's come in, started the last game, and now Ramsdale's on the bench. I think that's an interesting point too, because you talk about culture and familiarity. One thing Southgate, I think a lot of people don't necessarily agree with some of his selections, but you could argue that he has created a culture uh, and a familiarity with team selections and choice and the way that players are gradually being introduced. You know, Bellingham, he held back for quite a while before really letting him loose. Ten Hag, will that happen over time? Potentially, can he rebuild a culture there? And then the Mikel Arteta one's a strange one because I think over these last couple of years he has built somewhat of a culture and then he's almost kind of um, caused himself a little bit of an issue with the goalkeeping situation. Yeah, so Phil, what would, what would be your take on the, the goalkeeper situation at Arsenal? If you're Ramsdale, surely you're, you've got one eye over your shoulder going, well, what's going on here? Yeah, it's kind of unprecedented, isn't it? It's um, very much... Every team's got their number one. Um, in Spain, it's very common to have a, a cup goalkeeper and, and a league goalkeeper. You know, if you're a team like Real Madrid or Barcelona, you play enough games to, to be able to compensate that. And maybe that's what he's going for as well. Maybe that's what he's used to having, you know, especially now that they're in, back in the Champions League. Is he, is he going to do that? I'm not sure. Um, 
obviously that there, there was that video clip, wasn't it, of Ramsdale giving giving Ray a big round of applause and you know, fair enough. I mean he he got some stick from that from some fans, but then you know, if he did the opposite, if he didn't clap, you would have probably got stick as well. It's a tough one. I know Peter Schmeichel came out and was dead against it, wasn't he? Uh, he said you should just have your, your number one keeper and I say it's kind of unprecedented to have two such top quality goalkeepers in the same team. It'll be interesting to see how that pans out. Yeah, like obviously Michael came out recently and I think Roy Keane also said something as well. Is that maybe the old school mindset, right? Like you look at Man City for the last few years, they've had two players for every position. Now, all of a sudden you're doing it with a goalkeeper and it's blasphemy, like you're not supposed to be doing it. But is it a case from a confidence point of view, you could look at it as two ways, right? Like you could be you could be Ramsdale in goal going, well, if I make one mistake, I'm done. So my confidence is kind of on the fence. Or you're saying, right, whoever's competing in practice in training is my number one. So it's almost like which confident which keeper has the most confidence? Yeah, I mean I, I think I think these days players are a lot more resilient. Um they're more they're more open to talk about when they are, you know, when they do go through tough times, but I do think they've got enough support system nowadays where they can. They, every club's got how many sports psychologists, how many coaches. Yeah, like I said, it's, it, don't really know my take on it because it, I haven't really seen it before. Um, uh, at this level, to have two two goalkeepers so so level and at top top um, ability. Yeah, we're definitely going to have to wait and see how this one kind of plays out. It, it's either going to end in Ramsdale wanting a move in January or he's going to thrive off of it. Obviously, you, like you said, you saw the the video clip of him celebrating David Raya in goal, but he knows the camera's on him, right? So is he doing that to be <laughs> fake or is he doing that to actually support him? Um, Goalkeepers union. Exactly. Like, even, uh, even like you said there, though, with City, the only constant they have had is probably... Edison, you know, obviously Harlan now as well. But even when if Harlan's out, you know you can just you can chop Alvarez there and he'll do well. Yeah, but, um, oh, yeah. Pep, Pep Roulette when he likes to rotate every player except Edison, definitely not good for my <laughs> fantasy team. Um, but no, I think you touched on something really important there is like obviously the mental health side of the game now coming out more, and I think we're starting to see players become more open. I think I I even look at me playing as a as a kid, albeit not to a great level, but it's a case of you just get on with it. You don't really talk about it. You just get, you do your job, you play. And that was kind of the same with teams back then. You wouldn't really hear media interviews. Obviously social media wasn't a big thing back then, but now you're starting to see straight after a game, some players almost apologizing for like bad results. And they're, they're wanting to have that relationship with fans, which I get, but then also I'm of the mindset Sometimes it's better keeping it to yourself and in-house within like a, a professional environment. But what do you think about some of these players coming out now and talking about their mental health? Obviously, they're, they're, they're big role models as well. Um, so I, th- I think the fact that they do it is is maybe, you know, especially especially for guys. You know, like you said, when we were growing up, it was kind of to, taboo, wasn't it? And it's a lot more normalised now. And I'm sure professional players in the 70s, 80s, 90s, they, they were probably going through the same same kind of thing, but you just couldn't talk about it. So I, th- I think it, as long as it, you know, I, 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 think, I think it's a good thing, to be honest. 
it, it kind of opens the door up for for other people to to see it as normal. Yeah, no, I think I definitely think it's definitely better for like obviously we're all involved within a, a coaching aspect and we all have our role models. Obviously we had our role models growing up. Like you said, it's it's good for younger players now getting maybe more access to the players, right? Of of what they're actually feeling. Gone are the, the old school days of you have to be made of tough things. You have to just acknowledge it and get on with it. Now it's a case of like yourself, obviously you with Alicante coming in and being a, a mental coach almost and saying, right, what are these small margins that we can improve our players on. Um, so I definitely think it's important that these players are being recognised. And I think as fans, we sometimes don't realise that these players are humans as well, right? It's like sometimes we think they're they're robots and it's funny you see videos and pictures of fans cursing and swearing at these players on the sideline you wouldn't go and do that in in the middle of the high street down the road would you and like you just look at the the abuse harry harry Maguire is getting at the moment it's crazy um but how do you obviously you don't know harry Maguire, but how how would you think he's kind of trying to cope with this pressure that he's getting on him at the moment from fans and media yeah like, like i said you, you can really tell the difference when he's in with england and when he's with united Difficulty for him is he's there day in, day out. So he's probably constantly getting reminders and he, he's, he's kind of associated probably going to the training ground, going into Old Trafford. He, he's he's kind of got that association in his mind now where I, I, I don't play well here. Um, and that's it's, it's so tough to, to stop that loop. Um, you know, I'm sure he's been getting help with that and uh, again, I don't know if you saw Ten Hag's interview before before the game yesterday, and you're talking about Maguire. It's like it doesn't need to prove anything to me, but and then it was good. Yeah, you can tell he doesn't, he doesn't trust him. That's, yeah, I don't. I don't tough. think Ten Hag's really come out right and said, "Yeah, Harry Maguire is a good player. He's in my plans." It, every time it seems like, well, it's up to Harry Maguire if he's going to be in my yeah. team. So I think, I think for that to happen, right? Last night in the cup game against Palace, I think he had a solid game. If he can do that three or four times, that then allows Tenag to come out and back him a little bit more. If he if it's just kind of a lie, saying he trusts him when he doesn't, I think he gets seen through. But yeah, I think, Phil, you mentioned the word resilience, and I think he is showing that somewhat, whether it's Maguire or Ramsdale or, or one of the you know people who Stu spoke about when it comes to the social media. So if he's in that situation, like how... How would you suggest he is resilient, and and how can they be? How can he show resilience in those difficult times? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I, th- I think I could have probably had a good game at centre back for United yesterday. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think Palace came out of their half once, did they? No, I think we had our first shot on goal in the seventieth minute, and uh, that went up in uh, yeah, up in Rose Ed. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, resilience is. A lot of it is self-talk, that the story you're telling yourself, you've, you've kind of, people don't like to use the word victim, but I think it, it's important to say sometimes we do have a victim mindset, we do feel sorry for ourselves, that's, that's human nature, but it's just stopping that story and, and instead of thinking, you know, poor me, having that poor me loop, as they call it, it's talking to yourself and, and saying, Right, number one, what's the solution? What can I do differently? And number two, reminding yourself of the good performances you've had and 
reminding yourself you're not a bad player. You don't turn into a bad player overnight. You don't turn into a bad player from international duty to, to, to club duty. So it, it is a lot of self-talk and, and the story you're telling yourself. Yeah, I think with that self-talk comes in like with that goal-setting part of it as well. I'm sure Maguire and people in his situation have pe- good people around him, right, that are helping him with the self-talk. Because have you found as well that it's hard for somebody to start with this, right? It's hard to to have that first step in self-talk. Is there anything you could maybe say to the listeners? Obviously, we have a few younger like players and college players listening to this. Who, How can they start the journey of self-talk? We we don't really, re- especially when we're younger, we don't realise that we, we're having self-talk all day, every day. It's something like we have, we have 90,000 thoughts a day and something like 80% of them tend to be the same as it was yesterday. So it's it, it's very much, first of all, being aware of it, what you're saying to yourself. So those moments where you are low in confidence, you are having that kind of self-talk. You're, you're probably not even realising that you're saying to yourself, I'm not good enough. Um, that performance proves that I'm not good enough and you start looking for evidence. So it's it's manipulating it's manipulating it. We, we kind of have those two minds, the human mind and the monkey mind. The monkey mind is, is there to protect us, but it's the one that's usually saying, Oh, don't don't go and play another match because last time you played you didn't play well, you know, and that's you tend to see maybe some players are injured for that game, they don't feel hundred percent, they don't want to play. Um and it's turning on that logical side of your mind and saying, well, don't worry, that was one game. You know, I also played well in this game, in this game, in this game. Um, so, yeah, it, it is, first of all, is recognising what, you, what you're saying to yourself. Yeah, so no, I was, think it... I was about to say, that was really interesting. I think that's going to be really useful for some of the players that listen in, but also some of the coaches too that are hearing that and thinking about how they can maybe uh, get that message over across to their players too. Yeah, and it, it it tends to be a domino effect as well. And you know, I've seen my I've been coaching for for eighteen years, and I mean, it's one of those things I wish I knew sooner that I use on the on the sidelines. That you know, when when I get frustrated on the sideline, that monkey mind saying shout at them, that's going to make it better. And it's usually just for for me to to feel better about myself. So it's it's just stopping yourself and saying, oh, hang on, he, it's the first pass he's missed today. You know, or it might be a case of asking why has the player missed it a couple of times? Can I give him something constructive as opposed to just shouting at him and hoping that works? Yeah, and I suppose even from a coaching point of view of if a coach loses a game, do they lose confidence in their own coaching abilities too? And like you say, they don't become a bad coach overnight, but maybe they have to uh, struggle with some of the same issues as the player does. Yeah, uh, yeah, you guys are more than aware as well. Being a head coach is a lonely job sometimes. It's it's hard to, like you said, there with the support system for for Harry Maguire. It's um, yeah, again, and it's it's putting it things into context. The your monkey mind after a loss is going to going to want to say either blaming it on others or blaming it on yourself, and it's important to put it into context. And um, what tends to work is, is reflecting. Once you once you reflect on it, it um, again looking at positives and negatives, it, um, it, it's it's a lot healthier. It's a lot more constructive, and it, you will usually see that the the losses don't last days. Then, which is again an issue that I I used to have. 
you know, and I think it's it's important. Obviously, these players are, are doing this, and do you think it kind of can change them when we're dealing with players with injuries, especially long term injuries? Um, you look at obviously, there's there's a lot of articles and interviews out there where, and especially with retired players, where they've turned around and said, "My loneliest days were." when I was injured, my rest of my team are going outside and playing and I'm stuck there in the physio's room getting all gods of treatment. Like I look at um, a big one for United at the moment is obviously Luke Shaw. Luke Shaw back mm. under Van Howe had the, uh, the the massive leg break. Done very well to come back, but now supposedly the injury he's got now is to do with that leg break. Surely that's got something to play on his mind now when he starts coming back. So is that... How would you kind of would you use self talk then, and what or would you look to maybe go a different route to deal with injured players? Yeah, it, dep- it depends what stage they're at. So there's, there's a big social aspect. You know, you're doing work with the physio whilst you're watching everyone else scoring goals, going for tackles, um, having that adrenaline rush, and you do, you do, you do feel uh, distant from them. Imagine if if we go back to to COVID times when we were on lockdown. If imagine you were the only one on lockdown, and then everyone else is out and about, and you go back into that environment, you're you're not going to feel hundred percent. You're going to feel very self aware. It's not going to come come naturally at first. So it, even that coming back into it is it, tough. Um, but what what a lot of clubs are doing now with with injured players um, that on the way back is they. They, they use sports psychologists alongside the physios, alongside the S&C coaches. And it might even be a case of, say, a, a break, just imagining using the visualisation of going in for a tackle. Because that, that, that tends to be what uh, kind of causes relapses. When players come back from injury, they go back into a game and they don't feel like they could go in for a tackle. They're worried if they're gonna if they're gonna redo it, but then they hesitate, and then that hesitation causes causes a, an injury. So um, yeah, what they do they get them to they get them to visualize it. So a bit of self talk, I imagine, but it's, it's mostly vi- visualization. Go you know, first of all, visualize going in for a tackle, and then it might be a case of having the ball on the wall and just getting to get little taps of the ball, just get used to that feeling. And they, they kind of build it up and scaffold it up until they're ready to go, go into that, um, that high intensity. Yeah. And no, I think uh, we've seen many players obviously get rushed back in and you can just sometimes tell that, and maybe at the level that we're all involved in, it's kind of sometimes easier to see, but you can sometimes see players are maybe shrieking out of a tackle. Um, I always remember Back when I was obviously in high in high school, secondary school, uh, a rugby coach saying to me, and I was useless at rugby, to be fair, um, saying, if you go into a tackle scared, you're going to probably hurt yourself more. So you have mm-hmm. to go in with that full force. And I think it's same to, like, you take a player who might have um, an ankle injury, who doesn't maybe want to go into that 50-50. Well, if they go in at 10, 15% off, they're going to probably get hurt again. So it's that I I always try and tell my players that if you go and win that first tackle and get that challenge, especially when it's their first game back or first session back, you're kind of getting over that mental barrier. But 
sometimes it's right. It's easier to be said than done. These players need maybe small goals um, to build themselves up to, like you said. But I think the injury side of the game, I think sometimes gets neglected. I'm not sure about your thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Like like anything in this kind of field, it's it's getting better, but I still think we're we're far off, um, especially that social side of it. You know, Ali Kante City for before this year, I was the the director of methodology uh, at, at the club, so dealing with the, a lot of the culture with the club. And one thing players hated is, right, if you're injured, you still go out to watch training rather than staying in bed. Is that and, so? Um, so on that point, then is it is it better? What do you feel like? Is it better for players to go out and watch the training so they're getting obviously the information, but then it's affecting them socially, right? Or is it better than they're not out there? Like That's a difficult one, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we didn't have the facilities to be able to have, um, obviously, a, a physio on a, on a completely different pitch with a sand, a sand patch where they could do their rehab. Um, I think it's important for them to be in and around it, whether they like it or not. Uh, I know it's frustrating. Again, we've all played... And when we are injured and you're watching everyone else play, it's tough, it's frustrating. Um, but I think them being part of it and, and even giving them jobs, uh, you know, uh, come and help me coach. Uh, I feel like that's probably been probably the biggest takeaway I've had in the last couple of years with, with injured players is getting them involved one way or another. Um, some of them, it's, it's not for everyone, but for, for a lot of players, a lot of young players, they, they might see coaching as a as a a long-term plan. So putting them in there, they still feel like they're getting something out of it. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, that's important. And I think, I think for the youth coaches that are kind of listening into this of sometimes we neglect those younger, those players that are injured, like, all right, well, I'll see you in a few weeks time. Whereas in fact, can we find them roles within the the club, the organization, whatever level you're at to make them feel involved? Because going back to the mental health side of it, there's nothing worse than a player who, loves the game to be away from the game. Um, and I think as fans of obviously teams in the Premier League, like you have to sometimes take a step back and realise that with some of these players that are getting injured. I look at Everton um, with Cal- Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Obviously, yeah. it's not his fault he keeps getting injured. And obviously, he had that bad injury, came back a couple of weeks ago and then got his fractured cheekbone. You could tell he was devastated um, these players want to play, um, but sometimes it's it's taken out of their hands. Um, and I'm sure someone like Dominic Calvert Lewin is probably right now struggling for confidence. Going, well, is my next injury going to be the next game? So I think you're right in terms of that player then has to kind of have that self talk and that goal setting to build themselves back up. Um, but in I terms like how of you, I was just, uh, I like how you talked about being involved as well. So I think sometimes it's easy just to be like, oh, if, even if you're injured, you know, be out there at practice. But then, like you said, they are literally sat on the side watching everyone else get into play and they're not involved. But if you can actually, if they can actually actively involved and they're getting something out of it, then they're still part of it. They're still part of the team and the, and the group that are out there on the field working. So I think that's definitely a big uh, takeaway from that is the involvement part, not just being there watching. Yeah, I think that can be done in the, the top level as well. We, you know, what what's stopping a player? Like, can, can he give us a hand with the under 18s? 
um, you know, share, share your knowledge with them. So then you, you still feel like you're, you're giving something to, if you feel like I'm only a footballer, that's what I give to the world and that's taken away from you. You're devastated, of course you are. Like I said, with, with Calvert-Lewin there, it's just one thing after another. But if you're then, say, going in with the under-18s and you're helping them, you still feel like you're giving something to the game. Uh, you still feel like you're, you've got that internal motivation to help. Um, in fact, I remember when I was coaching at, with Palaces under-9s, under um, a good 15, 10, 15 years ago now. Uh, and we, we had we had uh, an under-16 player who was injured. He had a long-term injury. He came and helped us out. And I, I think that's, that's great. It's, like you said, so many problems that happened with players. Was it Tyrone Mings who, who was saying in, on the podcast that he started having problems with alcohol when he got injured? Because he was just at home all day, every day. And nothing to do, and he's trying to numb himself. But I think you look at the—I don't know if you've seen it—the the, the Delhi Alley um, interview with Gary Neville. Mm. That's a great yeah. one, obviously, for listeners to listen to to kind of see the other side of the game that sometimes we don't see. And he was saying how he was his confidence was shot at a certain point in his career, and it still is. And he was taking obviously sleeping pills to trying to get him mm. through the games uh, or get him through the day. Really, um, he would explain how you would have a night game and your adrenaline would be rushing. It would be one o'clock in the morning. He's struggling to sleep. So, And I think he was saying as well, a lot of players are on these sleeping tablets just to get them through it. And he, there's one point of the interview. He, he says he looks in the mirror and I think he's still at a young age and he's debating, well, should I just retire? Um, and we as fans don't see that side of it unless these players are coming out. Um did you uh, did you manage to see that Delhi Ali interview? Um, I saw some clips of it, and yeah, it's it's, it's powerful. And you, you kind of mentioned it before, where it's, we forget that they're yes, they're footballers, but they're humans. Um, yes, they're earning millions, millions of pounds, but think about the pressure that they're going through. You know, you're playing, you're not only playing, say, your Man United player playing in front of seventy odd thousand. You've then got the millions that are going to be watching around the world millions are going to watch it on match of the day and you're available on social media you, you can't get away from it and again is it i mean even someone like Grealish after the world cup uh, sorry after they won the champions league they, they did the treble some players some fans gave him abuse for having a having a can of beer and it's like he's human <laughs> he's human he i think he came out and said it to be fair to me he was like i've I've worked hard every day for the last uh, nine months. For me, it was just a moment that I thought, well, I can switch off a bit before I go again. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly there. It's like, if if it was me or you or Jack and you got a job promotion, how are you going to celebrate it? Were well, you going to go out probably for a nice dinner, bottle of champagne, whatever it is. But, but just because you're a professional player, it's almost deemed like, well, you're a role model 24-7. You shouldn't be out there drinking, but... That's maybe that no team might ever do the treble again. So for him to go out and support it like a normal human being, fair play to him. But yeah, so kind of using that point and going back to the Premier League, obviously Man City are, are full of confidence and I don't think they're ever going to drop their confidence until Pep leaves, which I'm praying for sooner rather than later. But <laughs> the the other end of the, the league table, you look at like uh, the teams that have come up from the, the championship, um, Luton, Burnley, 
and Sheffield United. Uh, I just want to kind of talk about Burnley at the moment. I was listening to the Monday Night Club on on BBC Six Oh Six, and Andros Townsend was on there, and he was saying how he had the contract in front of him for a mm. one year deal at Burnley, and they took it away from him and said, "Well, we want to give you the chance." hasn't really played out so far albeit they've had a tough schedule but in my eyes in terms of building that confidence around the team and I don't know your thoughts but I feel like you need that mix right of experienced players and younger players yeah I saw a bit of that um Andrews Townsend part as well he got his kids he was looking at schools for his kids and so forth um yeah I mean it's one of those isn't it it's the old Alan Hansen, you can't win anything with kids, and then United won the league with the average age of, age of 26. Uh, but obviously, this is different. Uh, the, the thing with, with young players, confidence tends to be very volatile. So they can get super, super confident, but they can drop down to super low confidence just as quickly. Whereas experienced players, they've kind of learned through their time as a player, what works for them. And they tend to be more consistent. They might not get that really high confidence that a young player, and you, you kind of see it, don't you, when a young player, they just don't care. Again, his debut goes on and just run ragged. Um, but I, th- I think that's where, when the times are low is when you really need that experience. Uh, and just someone kind of like stairship and right, again, it's just one loss. Let's keep going. Um, I personally think Burnley will be okay in, in the long run. The other two teams, I think not so much because of the confidence, just because of because of quality. Um, I think you guys actually said it on the first the first episode where the Sheffield United fans are saying that the, the squad this season is actually worse off than last season. So well, yeah, um, I think uh, the proof's in the pudding with getting absolutely trounced at the weekend eight nil. How yeah. how are these players and even the manager reacting to? It's not like they've lost a, like by a couple of goals. Like you've just been absolutely smashed eight nil. How are these players now? Like if if that was you, if you were involved with with Sheffield United, what would you probably be looking to do the next day after an eight nil loss? Yeah, I mean it's 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 the old regression to the mean. It's not going to be as bad as as the last game. It it's kind of the I know it's a very old cliche, but going back to basics, you know, not overcomplicating anything. Um, just give them just give them some success. Right, we're gonna work on defending for a few days. Just give them some success. You know, so it's like the bit of the tricks to the trade, maybe it doesn't it doesn't quite go with the, the Premier League players, but you know, as as youth coaches, which which we've all been, is you know, even making the pitch a bit smaller and so they can keep narrower and you're just giving that beginning success and then building up again. I think it's important as well to get the players' take on it too. Again, depend depending on what the managers like. Um, I think getting getting a way to get a bit of buy-in is also getting getting their take on things and letting them open up and giving their opinion. So yeah, right about giving the the players that power as well, and I think that translates obviously to the youth game. Also, is potentially it's a case of like right, we've just been smashed eight 0 The next day, let's all get together and right how we're all in this together it's not then a case of he spoke about it earlier about obviously the the fergie days where he was the or um like the leader of the group now it's a case of it's a shared collective how are we going to get through this um 
do you find there to be maybe more positives to doing it that way than maybe just having a single leader? Uh, it depends. It depends on the individual. Um, again, I mean, you think about Mourinho. You asked Mourinho to do that. I can't imagine it going very far. Um, but again, going you know, going back to the the research done by Damien Hughes on the Barcelona way, he says that the authoritarian style is is great when they're there, but tends to fall apart straight after. The the longest lasting one is the commitment culture. So, which is basically what Guardiola did at did at Barcelona. Um, I know they haven't quite been the same the last couple of years, but they've still been up and thereabouts. And the commitment culture is effectively that you're going you're going by a set of values that everyone has a say in and you, you buy into. And at the long on the long run for the for a club, that tends to be more beneficial. You also have other cultures like the the thing called the star culture, which is kind of like the Real Madrid model, where you just buy the best players. Um, but I think this is why Guardiola is such a genius. Again. Some pessimists might say, oh, yeah, but he's just got loads of money. But my God, you try and get that that amount of quality players, 25 near world-class or near world-class players and keeping them all happy and keeping them playing and all on board, the man's a genius. Yeah, I think you look at Man City. I know obviously earlier we brushed them off saying that they've got the full confidence, but I think you look at Pep, right, in terms of how he manages that team and how... Each player, you might not get one single player, obviously we said Edison, but outside of that, playing every single game and how he balances those players around, um, he's also probably looking at this of, right, how do I maintain maybe a, a mutual confidence, right, amongst the team? I don't want one player being overconfident, but again, on the flip side, I don't want a player being having no confidence. So I think you look at Pep as obviously like a, he's obviously changed the game, right, in the last... 10, 15 years, he is the the manager out there that has changed the game the most. And some would even say changed the game the most out of any manager out there. And I think he's kind of done that also from like a psychological point of view within his teams. I was going to say, I, I think that um, a lot of what you spoke about there is about keeping uh, a steady level, right? Like going back to the teams who are newly promoted, do they need experience? And the younger... Younger players maybe having really high highs but really low lows, where an experienced player keeps it steady. I think at the other end of the table, we saw we see that with Arsenal sometimes, who have a pretty young squad, and when they win a game, it's the way they celebrate and and even leading from the front is Arteta on the sideline with, is it almost over passionate? And is that why they fell away at the end of the season last season, where their highs are really really highs, and then maybe their lows when they when they don't win a game they should win are really, really low. And at the same time, you know, with the Man United team that had all those kids in it, they had a, they had a, probably just enough with a couple of the older guys like a Cantona and like a, a Steve Bruce who who didn't let those highs get really high and at the same time probably didn't let the lows get really low either. Um, whether that's a player like those guys or like you mentioned there with Ferguson being kind of the autocratic leader, the same thing. He didn't let the highs get too high or the lows too low. He kept it a steady ship. And I think that I think that kind of shows the importance of that whichever end of the table you're on. Yeah, and I think you look at like Sir Alex, right? When those players maybe became overconfident or thought they were too big for the club, take David Beckham for example, what did he do with him? He got him out the door. Um and maybe even Roy Keane. Yep. Yeah. And maybe that's that's Pep's geniuses. He doesn't allow that to happen. He doesn't let it get to that stage where he has to get rid of his best player because they've got to that point. 
when yeah. you look at Jesus, right? He let go of Jesus, and people kind of question that. Like, well, you just let Jesus and even Sinchenko go to somewhat of a rival back then, but he's got the next player coming through the door uh, because of that confidence that he probably. You look at the the player that kind of replaced. Um, well, didn't replace him, but kind of pushed him, Kyle Walker, in terms of that Rico Lewis, a young kid coming in. If I'm a young kid coming into City, I'd almost be ultra nervous because of that way of playing. But it seems like any youth player that comes into that Man City team is breaming with confidence. Yeah, even even Jao Cancelo as well. At that time, at that time, he's probably the best fullback in in the Premier League. And then he became disgruntled, but it just didn't seem like a big deal. It was like, right, you can go. And then life carries on. Uh, I think something that's happened with United over the last few years is it seems to linger. You know, when you have these moments, you know, Ronaldo, Sancho now as well. It just, yeah, these things just seem to linger there where I think that, again, that's part of Pep's genius where, right, if you want to go, you might be the best fullback in, in the league. Go, we'll get someone else in. Yeah, and I think so. Obviously, we there we're speaking about the top end of the league, and obviously we spoke obviously with Luton, Sheffield United, and Burnley at the at the bottom. I've also found it as well with like those mid-table teams, and like you might see this feel as obviously as a Palace fan is you would put say Crystal Palace as a a mid-table team year on year out. Yes, they might fluctuate with relegation, but you sometimes see with like these these mid-table teams. I'm talking maybe from like eighth place to fourteenth where. Fans are pushing them to, no, I want to go get into Europe next. They might have one good season where, like you look at, take Everton, for example. Everton had a period where they were doing very well, getting top 10 and pushing that way on. And then all of a sudden they find themselves at the wrong end of the table because maybe they got overconfident. Um, So what's your thoughts on maybe those mid-table teams finding that neutral ground? Yeah, I actually passed your pod on to an Everton fan, and um, they probably didn't listen yeah, I did, again. <laughs> I, did, I did. I did warn him that the first episode you kind of called them a, a club that just needs to be relegated now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, obviously Palace, uh, we're currently king of the mid-table, biggest biggest rivalry every season. Are we going to finish eleventh, twelfth, or thirteenth? Um, I don't think we've been in the relegation zone since Hodgson first took over. Um, wow. After well, it was Frank the ball when, when we lost our first four games, which um, there must be six, seven seasons ago. So it's it's one of those ones where we're never really. It's exactly that problem that that you said there, Stu, with Palace fans at the moment is that board. And I think the older ones, I'll put myself in that bracket where we saw ourselves in in um, administration in 2010, 2000, so twice in, in ten years. Steve Parrish, who's a Palace fan, who took the club over and said, I'm, I'm not going to put this club into administration. And you could tell what, what he's doing now, what he's spending money on. Obviously, the player, the, the fans want, right, spend it on players, spend it on players, spend it on players. But he's he's bought a new training, he's redone the training ground, he's got bought a new uh, academy, he's building a new stand. So he's cre- creating a foundation. But yeah, it's, it's that balance, isn't it? Um, again, very... This is the first time we've ever survived a season, uh, more more than a season in the Premier League. And we've been in there, I think it must be 13, maybe 12, 13 years now. Um, so, again, this it's putting things into context. It is. And I think we always take it back to that fan perspective, right? And you're, you're right in terms of 
the, for the Palace fans, obviously having nearly their club not exist not that long ago to now being a mid-table team is you have to be you have to be wary of where you're at um but you also have to also be realistic and i think that comes into the whole confidence within all the teams you have to at the end of the day be realistic to where you want to get but and i think gary neville said this in the game before brighton i think it was he said that all the United fans recognise Brighton are a very good team at the moment. But as a fan, you're always turning up to the game with confidence your team's going to win. So, like, for example, you look at Sheffield United. Every pundit in the world has probably said Sheffield United are going to be holding up the league. They're going to be in bottom. But as a fan, you have full confidence in your team picking up a result. Um, and even, like, with Luton. So it's almost one of those that I think we want the players to come out and interact with the fans in terms of confidence, mental health, but I'm sure these players as well don't kind of want to listen too much to the fans and make them overconfident. You're only one loss away from going on a streak of losing games. Um, but just to kind of like, obviously, summarise the whole confidence, how it could shape your team this season, any last thoughts on where you kind of think confidence is within just within the game at the moment. I heard a great quote last week, courage over confidence. So confidence at the end of the day is a feeling. You can't or you can maybe adapt it, but you can't always control it. Um, whereas courage is a choice. So it's, it's going out, you know, especially if I was going to say to any player, like courage always above confidence. Courage is, is, is a choice. You, you choose to go out there, be brave or, or you don't, you shy away from it. Whereas confidence is fleeting. We've all had low confidence. We've all had high confidence. Um, I, th I think that's, again, it goes back onto that steadiness of, of the great managers and the, the most consistent players is they don't, they don't let themselves get too high or too low. You know, yeah, on the day, celebrate. If you win, feel bad if you lose. But as long as the day after, you're going back in neutral. I, I think that's where, where we're kind of at now. Yeah, no, I think uh, I think this has been a, a different episode to what we've had before in terms of maybe a little bit more serious than the light-hearted ones we had. But I think your knowledge in this area is is evident. Uh, you've you've spent a lot of time researching this, and it's clear that you know what you're talking about here. And I think Alicante is in good hands, and anyone that's signing up to Mindsight Sport is definitely in good hands using you um, and the mentors that you have. Um, so no, from from myself, a really big thank you for coming on, Phil. We hope hope you enjoyed it, um, Jack. Any any last words from you, mate? Uh, just to repeat what you said there, you know, thanks for coming on. I think there's been some really good nuggets of knowledge that people can take away from this, uh, whether it be thinking about that self talk and and building your own story or uh, keeping that level kind of head and and not letting the ups or the downs being too high. And I agree with the. Uh, Courage over confidence being a great quote at the end too that players can consider. And um, and I know there's a lot of coaches that listen to us guys and, and maybe they can help transfer that knowledge over to their players as well, which is great. Um, yeah, so thanks thanks for just dropping some kind of uh, nuggets of wisdom for us. Yeah. The... No, thank you very much for having me on. No, it's been, uh, it's been our pleasure. Um, I guess 
maybe one way we could wrap this up, obviously you being a Palace fan, me being a United fan, obviously we played last <laughs> night, but the Let's rematch is this that. Saturday. What's your predictions? I don't think I don't think it would be as bad as yesterday, but it would be hard to look away from United win. I'll go 1-0 United. Yeah, I think it's going to be a, a much closer game. Um, I think, obviously, you guys really didn't turn up that much yesterday. Um mm-hmm. And obviously, we uh, it's probably the best we've looked all year. So I just hope we can carry that on. Um, I think you're right in terms of a close scoreline. I think we're too vulnerable at the back not to concede. So I'll probably go 2-1. So uh, obviously, this episode comes out on Friday. The game is Saturday. So uh, I'm sure uh, I'll be texting you uh, Saturday night or Sunday morning about the result. Uh, no, I'm going to change my one to 2-1 to, to Palace, actually. Okay, so we'll go two one either way, and uh, the next time, hopefully, we see each other, we'll uh, I'm sure we'll put a, a bet on it. Um, but no, Phil, thank you very much. Um, before we do go, Jack, you haven't got away with this one. Do you have the three answers or the yeah the three people that are the top holders of the red cards, all on eight? Uh, so I think I've I think I'm pretty confident on two out of the three because I think I've just like seen the stat. This stat kind of thrown around on like a TV show and or you know that kind of thing. So I'm pretty confident Patrick Vieira is on there. That's one. And then the second one I think I've got because I think he he's like a, a holder of two records that you don't want. One being red cards and one being on goals. And I, I think, think that's Rich, that's Richard Dunn. That's like that one is of those, number like, two. <laughs> that's like one of those Great stats that just kind of stick in your mind a little bit. Most on goals <laughs> and most red cards. And then the third one is is just a bit of a guess. So I just start to think about kind of the the dirtiest players that have ever played in the Premier League. Well, that could that could be another episode, right? The dirtiest eleven that you could pick. <laughs> Who, who's the hard? Who's the hard men of the Premier League? Well, I guess it was people like Vinnie Jones, Duncan Ferguson. I think Alan Smith got a lot of red cards, although I don't know if he was really dirty. Um, Roy Keane probably is up there with the red cards. Um. Okay, before the listeners fall asleep, who's your third choice? Is it one of those that I've said? Who's your third choice? I'll go Duncan Ferguson just because I remember he's probably got a few red cards <laughs> from elbowing people in the head. Well, I'm going to take my hat off to you. You got all three correct. Well done. Oh, okay. I, I knew I had two. I didn't think that third one was going to be right. but I thought it might have been an easier question, but I thought, you know what? I'll be nice after last week was a tough one. No, um, that was tough. I just got lucky with the Richard Dunn being one of those things that stick in your mind, you know? Yeah, but uh, no, so that's another episode. Um, we look forward again to bringing on more guests. Uh, and before we go, yeah, Phil, thanks very much for coming on. And uh, we bid everyone a, a nice weekend. Goodbye. Thanks for having me.